after a holiday and after a hard day at work and dealing with people and all of that, doesn't it feel good to sing praises to the Lord? What, just how great thou art. There's a lot of stuff going on that catches, catches our attention. Some of it we all know about because it's in the news. Some of it is just what you're going through in your life and the personal things you experience. And yet God, we read last week in Psalm 113, which is where we're going back to tonight. Uh, God, it says that he stoops to look, he humbles himself to look down on the affairs of uh, people like us that are here on earth. And so God's not just distant and he is not far off and he is not unaware and you don't have to do something to try to get him stirred up or get his attention he is actually watching and this is the great God who sent his son to die on the cross who raised him from the dead who accepted his son's sacrifice as the payment in full for our sin the God who is doing all things according to the good pleasure of his will and the God who is going to come back and through Christ rule and reign on this earth and even one day make a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. And I just find all of that awesome. And um, I think about what John said, even so, come Lord Jesus. And so I pray for that. I think that really is where our hope is. He is, as Titus says, our blessed hope. So don't dread the return of the Lord Jesus. Look forward to it. It's going to set everything in order and at the same time if he doesn't come in your lifetime that's okay because he's always with you watching out for you and on that day when you go to be with the Lord the angels will gather up around you and form an honor guard and they will escort you into the presence of the king where you will dwell forever and ever in other words uh, going back to our friend Wayne Robinson it's a win-win situation isn't it there's just no way that the people of God can lose. And so uh, as we go to um, Psalm 113, we're going to look at verses 7 through 9. And uh, this is a longer psalm than we looked at. We're actually going to finish it up in two messages. So uh, that, that's quite an accomplishment. I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, look at verse 7. Okay, after we talked last week about praise and the priority of praise. Hallel is what these psalms are called. Part of hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Verse 7 says, He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that um, he may seed him with princes. Okay, think about that. That's quite a change from the ash heap to being seated with princes. Okay, and... Uh, it goes on to say, with the princes of his people. That's tall cotton, I guess we'd say. Verse 9, he grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. And that ends, praise the Lord. Now, something uh, strikes me when I read the last part of that. Have you noticed that in the Bible, having children was considered a great blessing and to be uh, fruitful was considered to be the blessing of God. But have you noticed how much now we avoid all of that and we uh, see people with more than a couple of children and we go, oh boy, I hope you can handle that. And boy, that's kind of rough. We think differently about children, don't we? And I, maybe that's why we abort so many of them. We don't really see them as a blessing. And then when you think about all of the sexual perversions that have come upon our land in the last oh, I don't know, 50, 60 years, uh, how many of them do not result and cannot result in conception? Homosexuals cannot conceive, can they? And uh, when you think about the abortion industry, it is to take what has been conceived and then do away with it because, uh, you know, you can't live and be yourself if you've got children, you know, that depend on you and those kind of things. And uh, when the feminist movement started saying, that uh, you ladies, you are not worth anything if all you do is become a baby factory. You need to have a career and you need to be able to have sexual escapades like the men do without consequences. Men don't worry about pregnancy. You shouldn't either. And then we find ourselves now with, um, uh, I always have to think about this, trans women, and that's really a man. And they cannot, I'm sorry, they cannot get pregnant. 
And uh, they don't do any of those kind of things like women do. And yet everything we talk about, it, it's, it's the idea that we want to be able to have any of the sexual escapades or sexual pleasure without any kind of consequences. I heard someone say years ago that if they ever come up with a cure or a treatment for AIDS, watch out because something worse will come along after that because we don't change our behavior. We don't ever want to do it God's way. We don't ever want to do it in the normal biological way we want to do it our way and we want it without any kind of consequences well that's the world we live in but the psalmist says here that uh, the true blessing of God is in being able to uh, bear children and he said that that is something that makes you joyful and I hope that you feel that way about children that they're not a burden they're a blessing and that they are a gift from God and even if they're the children that are not your own, but children in the church, we ought to pray for them and thank God for them. And we ought to thank God for people that work with them and teach them and instruct them and even play with them. One of the things that we've learned over the years is with children, if you play with them, they tend to listen to you. If you don't play with them, they tend not to listen to you. Uh, near as much and, and you know it's probably not a hundred percent but kind of the way that it works so I want to encourage you to uh, pray for our children and pray for our students and pray that we could be effective this is a wicked world we live in that we're leaving behind to them and uh, I, I regret the fact that I thought my generation would do a better job than we have done but boy we have fumbled the ball so badly and these poor children are going to inherit all of that and so tonight, we want to look at some things, and we don't want to uh, be in despair over that because God is still in control. And uh, you say, well, what about where we've messed up? God already knows that. He's already paid for it, and he's already made allowances for it, and it doesn't throw him off one little bit because he is the God who rules and the God who reigns. So, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Oh, if we only could praise him like he deserves to be Praised. And we're going to talk in verse 7, looking at this, and uh, that's where we get uh, our first point here. And notice that uh, we praise the Lord because He includes the insignificant. Any insignificant people here? Any people that feel like you don't matter? Any people that feel like they're not really heard? Any of you feel like that, you know, if, if you were taken out tomorrow, nobody would really miss you all that much? Well, I guarantee you that's not true. And uh, you leave some footprints that uh, are going to be tough for other people to uh, follow. But I pray that they are clear footprints and not confusing footprints. So they don't just wander all over, but you're making a beeline for the cross in everything you do. Where do I get this about the insignificant? Because it says he raises the poor out of the dust. Now it's pretty bad to be poor. Some of you have been there. But to be raised out of dust... That's, that's a whole different thing, a whole different picture. And uh, when I think about the poor that are being raised out of the dust, I think about um, if they're down in the dust, one thing I can guarantee you, they're overlooked. Nobody pays much attention to the people that are down in the dust. They're in the gutter. They're wherever. They just walk right on by them. Kind of like the story of the man that went to the, uh, was going to Jericho and the thieves got him and beat him half to death and robbed him and left him there. And then along comes uh, one of the temple workers, a priest, and uh, you would think, yay, like the cavalry coming, right? But he looks at him and walks on the other side of the road and so does a Levite. But a dirty, nasty, filthy, foreign Samaritan comes by and has compassion on him. What does the Samaritan do? I, I guess it's kind of like this. He lifts him out of the dust, doesn't he? He can't get up. He can't help himself. He gets him up and he dresses his wounds. And then he puts him on his own animal because the man obviously cannot walk. And then uh, takes him to an inn and pays for his lodging. And said, and if there's anything else that he needs while you're here, take care of him. I'll pay it when I get back. What a beautiful picture. When I think about the poor being in the dust, I think about the people that... They're so insignificant, nobody knows their name. Nobody cares about them. Nobody's checking on them. Uh, kind of sounds to me like nobody really misses them. Yeah, they're gone. We don't know where, but so what? That's kind of the way this is. Well, when the psalmist says he lifts the poor out of the dust, he's talking about taking insignificant people, taking nobodies, and making them somebodies 
in the cause of Christ, right? And so when I look at this, that blesses me because I kind of feel like uh, one of these kind of people. I had a friend one time that said, how do you see yourself? And he said, scotch tape. And we all said, what? And he goes, I'm here, but nobody notices. I wonder if people feel like that very often, even when they come to church. You may feel like that. But let me tell you something. You've got something better than my attention or the attention of the cool people in the church. You've got the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords paying attention to you. And He knows your name. And He is taking care of you. That's a wonderful thing. And so uh, here we are thinking about the overlooked. We think about the humble. By the humble, not the uh, the good kind of humility, but the humble of you, you don't have anything to offer anybody. You don't have anything to give to anybody. You don't have any wisdom. You don't have any money. You don't have any prestige. You don't have any connections or anything like that. And uh, those without status. I would suppose if you are poor, that's bad enough. But if you're the poor that's just down in the dust... I don't know what uh, that might be and what the cause for being down in the dust might be. Maybe sick. May have cancer and you can't afford treatments and now you've collapsed finally or something like that. Maybe you've been robbed. Maybe somebody has just beat the snot out of you and you're unconscious and you can't get up. You're down in the dust. Uh, maybe it's something like that. Maybe you're drunk. Maybe you're high. Maybe it's uh, you haven't eaten in a long time and you just pass out. Because of that, I don't know, the psalmist doesn't say anything about that, but it says this, that God lifts them up out of the dust. Praise God, there are people that are delivered from alcoholism. There's, there are people being delivered by God from uh, abuse and from uh, you know, hopelessness in this whole situation. People delivered from drugs and all of that. We have uh, testimonies of people all over the place that have come out of terrible and horrible situations because he raises them out of the dust. I can tell you one thing about it. These people don't have any status, do they? And they don't have a future. They don't have a hope. You don't end up in the dust. You don't end up in the street when you are real excited about your future. That's usually what happens when you kind of come to the end and hope has run out. You don't think that there really is a, a future for you. And uh, maybe we think of it like this. If you were to uh, be back in the days where the, when the psalmist lived and you saw somebody that had kind of been abandoned by their family, they had made horrible mistakes and they're unconscious or laying there in the dust and they're just a nuisance to you, you have to walk around them because you don't want to be unclean. Well, there's one thing if we go back and we think about the times in which they lived, that person that's laying there in the gutter, they can't do anything for you. And that is kind of the point we want to get at. God saves people who cannot do anything for Him. He saves people who are helpless, who are hopeless, who cannot get to Him. He comes to where they are and He lifts them up. You say, well, I've seen people do something for God. Well, actually, what you saw was God doing things through them that they could never accomplish on their own. And that's true for all of us. And so that's the first thing. He, he looks down upon and saves the insignificant, which is where we all find ourselves. And uh, this last part is, uh, well, uh, the first part actually of that verse uh, of the psalm is a quote from Hannah's song. Remember Hannah? Hannah was married to Elkanah and she couldn't conceive a child. And so she, uh, every time they would go to... Uh, um, was it Jerusalem or Shiloh? I think it was Shiloh back then. And she would go into the tabernacle and she would pray and pray for a son. You remember at one point she is praying silently but moving her lips and Eli the priest thinks that she's been drinking or something like that. And as it turns out, God honored that prayer and the prophet, anybody remember his name? What's that? Samuel. Be bold. If you're going to make a mistake, make a big one, okay? And uh, let, us, let us have a good time. Samuel, you're, you're dead right. And Samuel was the prophet, the uh, king anointer, the last judge of Israel. Uh, a good man, a godly man. Was born uh, from Hannah. And uh, it says in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 2, verse 8, He raises up the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap. See, so far we're just dead on. And it says to make them sit with princes 
and inherit a seed of honor. That last part is just a little bit different, but it's the same idea, the same thought. Either set with princes, and if you're sitting with princes, you have indeed inherited a seed of honor. And that's what uh, she prayed, and the psalmist, no doubt, is thinking about that as he is writing this psalm, because there's example after example after the example in biblical history of how God has done exactly that. He takes the insignificant and he uses them. You know, there are a lot of people that uh, the world would consider insignificant. The other day, I heard a clip on a podcast uh, on Jeopardy. Okay, to go to Jeopardy, I mean, and get it on that show. I mean, these are people that know uh, everything in the world. They know Greek gods, Greek goddesses. They know Plato, Socrates. They know all of that kind of stuff. But you know what tripped them up? A $200 question, and they couldn't complete the sentence. Our Father, which art in heaven, and I think it was this part, blank be thy name. And they had no idea. None of them. Because in our day and age, we have become more of a secular society in a secular nation. We're more like Europe. We're more like France than we are uh, the United States of America. And uh, if, if God doesn't intervene, that'll get worse. And so now we have uh, uh, parents who took their kids to church and the kids learned the Bible stories, David and Goliath and Jonah and the whale and all of that. But they hated it. And so they took their kids to church, maybe at Christmas, maybe at Easter, maybe for a funeral, maybe for a wedding. And now those kids grow up and they don't go to church at all and they haven't read it, the Bible at all. They've never heard those Bible stories. So they don't know who Paul is. They don't know who Samuel is. They don't know who David is. They don't know any of those kind of things. And that's kind of the direction that we are all headed and we look at our society and we wonder why it's getting so violent, so drug addicted and you know, all of those kind of things. Why we don't seem to have any scruples. And that's a lot of the reason why is because we are training up now a couple of generations who really don't think that church is necessary, the Bible is necessary. And even worse, they don't think it has anything to say to them. They don't think that this pastor has anything to say to them. And they don't think that you have anything to say to them. In fact, they probably kind of go, well, that's the way grandma thinks. But, you know, she's old. That's the way old people think. And we're enlightened <clears throat> and we can uh, handle all of this kind of stuff. And so... All of the, the society we're in turns into a mess. And things aren't getting better, but they're getting worse. And we are, as a church, as a people of God, we are fading into insignificance, aren't we? Nobody seems to really care what we have to say or what the Lord has to say. But God has always had a people, and God works through a remnant. And so often, He works through people that you've never heard of. There are tons of names in the Bible that if we were reading... Uh, like when we were in Exodus, you know, there'd be this long list of names. Or in Romans 16, there's a whole long list of names as Paul think, uh, thanks people. And we don't have any idea who they are. They seem to be insignificant. Except, think about this, God knew their name. God included their name in the scripture and God used them. And that's just an illustration about how none of us, none of us are unusable and none of us are past the point of being used by God. The world says, well, you've got to have enough degrees to fill up a thermometer. You've got to have connections. You've got to have money. You've got to be super talented. And that's what a lot of churches are built on now. And yet our society continues to rot from the inside out. You know why? Because God uses people that are insignificant. Not the proud. Not the ones who are capable. Not the ones that think they are equipped. Not the ones who say, I can handle this. He uses the ones that he raises up out of the dust. Anyway, that's my thought on that. Number two, he includes the desperate. You know, we don't like to be desperate, especially as 21st century Americans. We don't like to take help. We don't like to ask for help. We, uh, as, if you're like me, I don't even like instructions when I'm putting something together. I can do this myself. I'm, I'm smart enough to figure all of this out. And, uh, you know, when you're putting a kid's toy together, you ever had this happen? You get it all together. You're pretty proud of yourself until you go, what is this? And you look over there. Oh, well, that's pretty important. That needs to be up here for this thing to work right. And then you realize you should have put that on in step two, not in step ten. And so you have to take the whole thing apart and then reassemble it. You ever do anything like that? 
That's a sign of the times. We don't like help. And this is why we are finding more and more that this younger generation that's coming up, they don't talk to their mom and their dad and their grandma and their grandpa like you did. You would call and get advice because you figured they knew what they were doing. We've got a generation now that they kind of look and they say, if you don't know how to use this thing, then what do you know about children? What do you know about life? What do you know about investments? What do you know about money and finances? And it's kind of sad because we're missing out or they're missing out. We're missing out on the opportunity to disciple them. They're missing out on getting the wisdom. We need to, they're going to make mistakes like we do. I hope that they could learn and they could make some new ones instead of repeating the same old things over and over and over. And you know why we do that? Because we're not really all that desperate. We don't really want to know. Somebody said one time to uh, a preacher, it was actually a prime minister of England, said to a preacher, I would give the world to know the Bible like you do. And the preacher said, that's exactly what it'll cost you. And that's the thing. We don't want to give up anything. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to give up any time. We don't want to give, any, give up any entertainment. We don't want to give up on any of our goals. And yet the Bible calls for radical change for everybody, even you, even me, as we think about this. And our problem is we're not desperate enough to know the Bible and we're not desperate enough to know God and to follow Him. God meets us at the point of our desperation. And notice here that uh, our verse says he not only pulls people out of the dust, but he lifts the needy out of the ash heap. Whenever I think of ash heap, I think of President Reagan who said the Soviet Union is destined for the ash heap of human history. And because he used the same words, kind of rings a bell in there, the ash heap. And that's where you discard things. That's where you get rid of things. When I was a kid, we had a big 55-gallon drum and that's where we put our trash. You know what we did every day in that? Struck a match. put it in. Did any of you ever burn your trash? Remember what that was like? And uh, we lived out in the country so we could do that. We could pop firecrackers too. But um, we would burn our trash. Okay? And that would turn into just a, a heap of ashes. Every once in a while you'd have to empty that barrel out. Sometimes the fire would make the barrel fall apart too. So you had to get a new one. But that's kind of the way we lived. That's very similar uh, to this. What are they doing in the ash heap? Are these just discarded people? Well, not by God. Maybe by society. But not by God. One writer said that uh, the poor, um, they eke out their... Uh, there's something going on with my eyes here all of a sudden. They eke out their existence by sifting through the rubbish that is outside of the city walls and they are sifting through the burned garbage ashes. It is there that God reaches down to them. Uh, that makes me think of a song. Everything makes me think of a song. Uh, a Gaither, an old Gaither song. Hadn't heard it in years. And it says, have you knelt beside the rubble of an aching, broken heart when the things you gave your life to fell apart? You're not the first to be acquainted with sorrow, grief, or pain, for the Master promises sunshine after rain. Hold on, my child, joy comes in the morning, quoting Psalm 30. Weeping may endure for the night. Hold on, my child, joy comes in the morning. The darkest hour means dawn is just in sight. Anybody remember that song? It's a great one. And so true. And so when we find these people in the ash heap, these are people who have no place else to go. And they're going through the garbage, the burned garbage, and you can imagine the smudges on their face and the, uh, the ashes that they're crawling through have stained their skin and their clothing, looking for just anything they can find that might feed them. Maybe even their family. I went to the dump one time with my grandpa. And uh, he had kept uh, a 1948 Plymouth, a green one. And he kept that and he used that just for work and all of that. This was sometime in the 70s. So that car was probably close to 30 years old at that time. 
And uh, we would drive it, and he had to go to the dump. And so he puts a bunch of stuff in the trunk. And remember those metal trash cans we used to have before we had the big blue things we have now? And he had three or four of those in it and, you know, tied it off with rope so it wouldn't fall out. And we go out to the dump. Big adventure. And I remember when we got out to the dump, first thing I thought of is, it stinks out here. Man, this is awful. And there were just piles of stuff. And there were bulldozers working and all of that. And as I was helping him carry those trash cans out to where we were dumping them, I saw something that I still have not forgotten. I saw children digging through all of the garbage. Their faces were dirty. Their hair was a mess. Their clothes were torn and uh, didn't fit well on all of that. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. And I still have not forgotten it. When I was in third grade, there was a uh, kid in our class. He was a really, really nice kid. He was a, a big guy, not, not big like fat or chubby or anything like that or whatever word you're supposed to say now. He was big in terms of broad-shouldered, tall, and uh, kind of uh, muscular. In third grade, he was like that. His name was Tom. And I remember him because when he came to school, he was always dirty. His hair was always disheveled. And his, his face always looked like it had dust or, you know, mud or something like that on it. And uh, his clothes, you know, he, he couldn't wear in-style clothes or anything like that. And I remember feeling sorry for him. And so uh, there were a few of us that tried to make friends with him. And we would play with him on the, on the playground. And uh, most of them just ignored him. And I remember the day when Tom came to school... And um, they discovered lice. And they took him down to the nurse's office. And they shaved his head right there in school. And I remember how humiliated he was. And I remember seeing the tears going down. We were only in eighth grade, eight years old. And I kind of had to look up to him. And I remember seeing the tears. They made streaks down his face where it was dirty. Doesn't that just break your heart when you think about little kids who are like that? When I was a teenager, my mom always had something to do in church, always. And uh, she signed up to be a bus captain. Any of you ever done bus ministry? Bus captain. The bus captain, uh, they give them a bus. And you have to go and you're supposed to theoretically fill up that bus. And the way my mom did it is she went to the store and bought a, a big tub of double bubble bubble gum. Remember that? The individually wrapped pieces. And we would go to Ator Heights and different places like that around town. And we would just knock on doors for several hours on Saturday. We're from Bethel Baptist Church here in Owasso. We're going to be running a bus by in the morning. Could we take your kids to Sunday school? Now, I don't know that I would do that now. I don't know that I'd let my kids go on a bus with strangers with all the things that you hear, times have changed on that. Southwest Baptist still runs buses, but they've kind of got a reputation for doing that. But I think in average places and neighborhoods, I'm not sure people would do that anymore. But we would start picking up kids. And so on Sunday morning, we had to get to church early, of course. You know, everybody else got to sleep later, and I had to get up early because I had to go with Mom and Dad and had to ride the bus to go pick up these kids. And uh, you can imagine how I felt about that. And you know what my job was? To get up and run to the house and get the kid and bring the kid back on the bus. Rain or shine, snow or what, you know, whatever, we had to do that. And I remember going out there thinking, why do I have to go get these snot-nosed little kids? But I started noticing something. There was one kid, his name was James Esslinger, and he was a kindergarten kid and uh, had red hair. And uh, I got him one time, and his shirt was dirty, and the buttons were all wrong on it, mis misbuttoned. And uh, his face just, I mean, he had snot and, and stuff in his eyes and all of that. And uh, I, I remember, I probably should have been more compassionate, but I remember just thinking, golly, he's kind of disgusting. And we got him on the bus. You know what my mom did? She hugged him. Then she took a washcloth that she had brought in a, baggie remember baggies and she washed his face off and then she took out a comb and she combed his hair and then she sat him down in the seat and said James did your mama and daddy get up with you this morning and he said no I got up by myself she said have you had breakfast and he said no ma'am and she got out something that she had bought at the remember the day old bread stores 
When you get that, we didn't have a lot of money, so she would buy Twinkies or cupcakes or ho-hos or ding-dongs or those kind of things. And uh, she opens up a package of Twinkies and gives it to him. And I remember him sitting there and eating that. He hadn't had anything to eat that morning. And he went to Sunday school that day. And he went to church that day and children's church, that type of thing. And he came uh, just about every single week. And the other people with their buses, there were about five, six buses that went out. They would have maybe five, six people on it. Our bus had 65 and nobody could figure out why. I knew why. Because as I watched that, I saw the compassion of my mom as she cared about those kids, and those kids loved her. I'm Facebook friends with a uh, girl in California who is not that much younger than me, but she rode our bus every week as a teenager to go to church. And uh, she wrote to me one time, I did something in, on my mom's birthday in tribute to her. And she wrote me back and said, I remember your mom. I loved your mom very much after all these years. And I thought about that. And I thought about that when I was reading these verses. That there are people like that that are out there. Who is caring for them? Who is praying for them? Who is ministering to them? Who has a burden for the forgotten, for the insignificant? Who has a burden for the people that are living in desperation? And if the church doesn't have an answer for that, then I don't know who does because it's certainly not the government and it's certainly not going to be a fellow drug addict or somebody like that. Things just get worse and worse and worse and worse. It's one of the reasons that we uh, try to help those children at Roosevelt because who else is going to do it? And uh, I wish we could get to know them. I wish we could hug them. I wish we could wash their faces. I wish we could give them a Twinkie. I wish we could tell them about Jesus. And we don't have that capability right now. But the Bible does say, let your light so shine before men that others, even little kids in a middle school, will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. God can use that kind of stuff when we back it up with prayer, when we back it up with compassion and concern, when we really do care about other people, I better move on because I'm getting ready to lose it. And I don't do that very often, as you know. But uh, it's bugging me. These people sifting through burned garbage and ashes. And it's there that God reaches down to them. What, what does that mean? What, what are we supposed to learn from that? These are those that the world overlooks and ignores, and yet they are treasured and they are blessed by God. If only we could see people like God does. It reminded me that the entrance to the kingdom of God is spiritual poverty. God saves only spiritual beggars. He doesn't save the self-sufficient. He doesn't save those that trust in their own resources. When you go through a narrow gate and you're holding on to you know, the suitcases of your life and your possessions and all of that, it's like a narrow turnstile. The suitcases won't go through. You've got to let them go. You've got to drop them. You say, where do you get that? Well, it's found in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of God being spiritual poverty. Matthew 5, 2, and 3. Listen to this. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit not just poor the spiritually impoverished for theirs and you can add this without doing violence theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven you have to enter a narrow gate there's not a broad way you can't come trusting in yourself well I believe in Jesus but I also believe in my rituals at church and my good works and all that. You can't take any of that with you. You have to be humble and you have to come before the Lord in absolute desperation because Jesus is the only way and only by faith in Jesus Christ can anyone be saved. I have nothing. Like the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing in my hands I bring, get this, simply to Thy cross I cling. And so God uses these kind of people, the desperate, the desperate people. Number three, he includes the nobodies. That's kind of what we've been saying anyway, but in his providence. You know, when we look back and we think about David 
killing Goliath. Oh, what a great thing, the giant slayer. But who was David at that point? A little kid, a junior high kid. Amazing how many Bible heroes are junior high age. You know, when Samuel went out to find a king from the house of Jesse, he said, Jesse, where are your sons? God is going to show me who the next king of Israel is. Well, any man in that day is going to be like super, super proud of that. Yeah, my, my offspring, people with my DNA are going to rule and reign. We're going to become a royal household. This is going to be awesome. And so he says, uh, which one? Oh, hey, hey, come over here, boy. And he brings him over here and he's the one that's tall and muscular and head full of hair and, and, and the, those eyes are piercing. And uh, boy, he's a good looking kid. And uh, Samuel says, Lord. And the Lord goes, nope. And they go that kid after kid after kid. Can you imagine <coughs> Jesse's feeling as he says, I'm running out of sons. Who does the Lord want? If he doesn't want this one, how in the world could he possibly want one of these? And then finally, Samuel says, you got anybody else? And when you read the text in there, it's kind of like Jesse goes, well, yeah, but we're sort of embarrassed by this one. All he does is keep sheep. <coughs> and being a shepherd back in those days, as most of you know, was not a romantic, wonderful thing. Oh, a shepherd, isn't that great? Shepherds. That's what you did when you couldn't do anything else. So when they said he's a keeper of sheep, what they were basically saying is, there's no way he could be the king. He, he can't do anything but watch sheep. Oh, he plays a harp, writes poetry. What a loser, right? What a loser. And yet he's the one that was anointed, who became the king. Nobody thought of that because God uses these kind of people, the nobodies, the insignificant people, the, the ones that everybody else thinks, oh, they'll never amount to anything, uses them in his providence. And it says that he may take them, the people that were in the dust, the people that were going through the ash heap, that he may make them sit with princes. Are you kidding me? That kid that I saw in the dump? Set him down next to King Charles, Prince William, or Harry, or something like that. Can you imagine? Oh, no, that would never do. That would never happen. And yet that's what the thing says God does. Sets him with princes, with the princes of his people. And he grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. That was the sign of blessing in those days. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about Joseph. What do you know about Joseph? Not Joseph and Mary, but Joseph with the colored coat. What do you know about him? Well, he was his father's favorite son. They didn't get him anything, did it? What did his brothers do to him? Threw him in a pit, and then somebody said, well, that's a waste of good money. Let's sell him as a slave. Can you imagine? If you were to see Joseph after he has been stripped of his clothing and his coat of many colors and sold to the Midianites and now he's a part of their caravan just chained up and uh, walking along in the desert on his way to Egypt, you would never have said, there goes a high-ranking government official. Not at all. Why? He was a slave. He was a piece of property. He didn't own anything. He wasn't his own person. He was Potiphar's slave. And then he tries to do right by Potiphar, and he ends up in jail. Now he's a jailbird. Now he's a criminal. What kind of a slave criminal ends up in, you know, where we even know their names or care anything about them? But you know the rest of the story, to quote Paul Harvey. He became the prime minister of Egypt. And that saved the bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ because they were of the tribe of Judah and that the tribe of Judah died, there's no Jesus, there's no Messiah. And so God uses this insignificant prisoner slave and what does he do? He saves the nation of Israel and the tribe of Judah and in his providence he uses a nobody to uh, keep the messianic line alive. Think about David, of course, as we just said. Think about somebody else. What about, uh, what about Esther? You like the story of Esther? 
I mean, she's somebody that nobody had ever heard of. She's a Jew. She's a, a remnant Jew that stayed in the kingdom of Persia when a lot of the other Jews went home. She doesn't have a mom or a dad. She's being raised by her cousin Mordecai. And then the, the, the queen uh, displeases her husband. And this man is such a narcissist and such an evil, awful man that uh, he dismisses her and uh, they have a beauty pageant. Now, it's not a, here she is, Miss America, you know, that kind of stuff. Not that. No, this is by force. This is the kind of thing to where you have to spend the night with the king and determine whether he likes you or not. There's a lot of gross immorality in it and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, yet when we look at that, she's the one that in the providence of God is chosen to be the queen. And what does she do? Uh, like Joseph, she saves the bloodline of the Messiah. Uh, Haman was going to wipe out all the Jews. Esther, because she has become queen, this nobody that you know, nobody had ever heard of or thought anything about, she becomes queen, and now she saves the Jewish race. There's a Feast of Purim that's named after that. That's an amazing thing. Just a few illustrations of how God actually does this and includes nobodies in his providential plan, just like you, just like me. We're nobodies, but yet we're included in his plan. And everything we do, even the normal, ordinary things that we do, like I talked about Sunday morning, that's where we serve God, and that's where God does a lot of his work. It's really amazing. Think of Sarah. Couldn't have children. Getting old. Think about Rebecca. And think about Rachel. They all struggled to have children. The promises of God hinged on them having children. And why did they have so much difficulty? I don't know. I don't know. They certainly weren't the Duggars, were they? And uh, 19 kids and counting that show. Remember that? And uh, here they are struggling to do that. And the bad thing is, uh, in those days you were considered to be insignificant if you couldn't bear children as a, as a woman. Well, they were not insignificant. And uh, before they bore children, though they might have felt like it, I'm sure they did, Rachel comes to one point to Jacob and says, Give me children, else I die. You know, that's pretty desperate on things. And they may have felt like it. They may have been seen that way by society. But they were made by God, made in His image, and chosen to play a part in the coming of the Messiah because the bloodline of Abraham is uh, where Jesus came from. And so these women had to have a child. Abraham couldn't be the father of many nations if he doesn't have a son. I mean, this is big, big, big stuff. And yet God uses these people that you never would have heard of had he not done this. I mean, it's just wonderful to think about that. Who knows how you'll end up? Who knows what stories about your life and what things you pass on to other generations that they'll be talking about long after you're gone and you become a hero or a heroine uh, in your family because of all of that. And when you think about Jesus, I guess he's the ultimate example. He came down from heaven. We can't even begin to imagine. Take the biggest, brightest, greatest palace on earth and then compare that with his throne in heaven. Doesn't even compare. We're just a speck of dust floating in the universe. And here he came and humbled himself to come and live among us and to die for, her, for our sins. Think about this. He could have come... And had the best that the world had to offer. He could have lived in a palace. Uh, could have uh, been in a place filled with powerful, influential people. He could have had foods of every kind. The very best and the best chefs. He could have had the finest, most stylish, expensive clothing. And he actually deserved that. And deserved even more as the king. He could have come demanding the very best, and yet he was born in a stable, raised in an in obscure Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? He associated with sinners, associated with the poor who had nothing to offer him. They couldn't raise his status. They couldn't give him money. They couldn't support his ministry, nothing. They had nothing to offer him. And sometimes he associated with the rich, who were despised and hated, like Zacchaeus, that kind of person, Matthew, and uh, uneducated tradesmen, just, you know, fishermen, who cares, just fishermen, that's all they were, that type of thing. And Jesus 
was not living upside down, we might say that's backwards. You got to think big. You got to dream big. You got to achieve. You got to climb the ladder. I uh, heard one guy say Jesus turned the ladder upside down and he went the other way. He humbled himself, didn't he? And so here he is uh, setting the world right side up. Those that exalt themselves shall be humbled. And those who humble themselves shall be exalted. The way up is down. The way to live is to die. The way to get is to give. And that's what Jesus did. And that's the way that he lived. I want you to turn in your Bibles. I promise we're almost through. If you'll turn to John chapter 13. Let's read verses 3 through 5. I just read this this morning. John 13. 3 through 5. And John writes for us, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. What's he going to do? He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. This is shocking. This is something only a lowly servant does. Poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' nasty, dirty, stinky feet. Think of all they walked through. They wore open sandals in those days. There was manure in the streets. There was dirt and dust and muck and garbage and all kinds of things. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and then wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Can you imagine? No wonder Peter's going, Hey, Lord, what do you think you're doing? You're not going to wash my feet. That, uh, you know, I'm better than this. And I wouldn't, you, you can't do this for me. And Jesus said, If I don't wash your feet, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And then Peter goes to extremes. Well, then wash all of me, my head and everything. And Jesus said, No, if you've already taken a bath, you don't need anything but your feet washed from time to time, right? That's Jesus. How humble is he? Look at John 13, verse 12, down a few verses. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and um, resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? I guarantee you they didn't. That's why he asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you, if you do them. He was showing us how to live and how to be humble and how to serve God and to serve other people. And that is just amazing because that's what Jesus did for us. He came to us as a servant and he is the one that has washed us and made us clean. Number four, hallelujah, because he includes the insolent ones. You know what insolence means? It means to be rude. It means to be arrogant. It's another word for sinners, but I need an I, so I use that one. And think about that. He adds us, people like us, to be his worshipers because he says, praise the Lord or hallelujah. That's what the psalmist is calling rebels and people that are insolent like us, who are rude, people who are disrespectful, people who have broken his law, people who are self-sufficient, people who think that we know a better way than God does. And yet he has redeemed us and called us to actually be his worshipers. John writes again later on in his life in Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. Wow. What an amazing thing that is. And before the Lamb. Why would God even allow those kind of people in His presence? 
And then it says, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Right? Hallelujah for that. He takes people like us, pulls us out of the dust, out of the ash heap, makes us to set with princes, and then better than that, we get to be in the presence of God for eternity. What a wonderful God we serve. No wonder the psalmist says, with a, as he concludes the psalm, Hallelujah! What else are you going to say? What else are you going to say? And when he talks about all of that, he's describing what the Lord has done for us. Have you praised Him? Have you thanked Him today? Have you taken time to acknowledge His greatness? Have you taken time to thank Him for His love and His involvement in your life? Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Why don't you do that now? Just tell the Lord you love Him. Just tell the Lord you're grateful that He stooped down from heaven to look upon you and to send His Son to suffer the ultimate humiliation for us. Raised us out of the dust. Raised us out of the ash heap. Seated us with princes, with royalty. You're seated around royalty now. These are everybody in here that's saved is a child of the king. And one day you're going to be in his presence as a worshiper of God forever and ever and ever and ever. How could he do that? Oh, praise the Lord for that father we want to say thank you tonight we don't love you near enough we don't thank you near enough we don't praise you near enough and uh, we are just kind of confined in our humanity and in our immaturity and in our selfishness and uh, we want to ask you to forgive us and set us free from all of that we think about all of the pettiness that captured our attention today. We think about all of the things that got our attention, all of the things that might disappoint us. And here we are thinking about what you have done for us. And uh, we should be the first to shout out a hallelujah from now all the way to eternity. We want to say thank you for loving us like that. Thank you that uh, just like... When I saw my mom take that little kid and button up his shirt right, wipe off his face and comb his hair and feed him and give him a hug, I, I think about Jesus and what he's done for us. We were in far worse shape than that little kid was, and yet you embraced us, you received us, just like the prodigal son's father. Can't imagine what that prodigal son must have been like, and yet that daddy wept and rejoiced and hugged him and put a robe on him and all of those things, and you've done all of that and more for us. And so we say to you, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you, and you are so good and so kind. And for that, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.